0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast.
1: That's what it's going to take on climate is America, the indispensable, has to wake up. And when it wakes up and enters this fight, we're going to solve it.
0: Hey, Adapters, welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. That quote that kicked off this episode was from Representative Bob Inglis. Bob is the executive director of Republic En, a nonprofit organization that supports free market approaches in addressing climate change. This was a fun episode, folks. Okay, a little more background. Bob used to be a Republican congressman from South Carolina. He served eight terms in a House seat in a very conservative district. Let's be clear, Bob is a conservative, but he has a fascinating history. Bob famously lost his House seat in a Republican primary partly because he came out in support of addressing climate change, a position his constituents voted him out of office for. After leaving Congress, he started Republic EN to give a voice to conservatives who want to take action on climate. Also in this episode, I interview three other conservatives who are representatives of the work that Republic EN is doing in other parts of the country. You'll hear their stories and why climate change became an important topic for them and the challenges of working on this issue when most of your party is hostile and even in denial of the threat of climate change. These guys are trailblazers and you're going to love hearing their stories. Okay, before we jump into our conversation with Bob, let's hear about a free market solution to climate change. Hey, Adapters. This episode is brought to you by The Sun Exchange. The Sun Exchange is a solar microleasing platform that allows you to earn an income while solar-powering the world. Through their online platform at thesunexchange.com, you can purchase solar cells for as little as $6 and then lease those cells to be installed on the roofs in sunny emerging markets. You'll get paid a monthly income for 20 years for the electricity your sales produce and the internal rate of return is estimated to be 10 to 12%. The Sun Exchange is giving America Adapts listeners a free solar cell when they make their first purchase. All you have to do is visit thesunexchange.com backslash adapts and you'll receive a free solar cell when you make your first purchase. For more information, check out the links in my show notes. Let's join our conversation with Representative Bob Inglis. Hey adapters, today I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Representative Bob Inglis, a former U.S. House representative from South Carolina, and now the executive director of Republic En. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks. I was trying to think of all the different questions I want to ask. You know, I was thinking, if you went back ten years, did you even possibly could have imagined that
1: you'd be in such high demand in the sort of the environmental circles? No, it was an unlikely. Let's see, ten years is the point at which I was getting tossed out of Congress. So uh, at that point, no, I, everything was unclear ten years ago. I will tell you that. That's for that's for sure. Particularly in my life, but uh, it's been a. It's not the path I would have chosen, but but I'm glad for the path because you know um, the most you can hope for out of your work life is that it uh, be about something big enough to be about. That was surely the case in Congress, you know, because in Congress, every day is filled with mission and purpose. But my days now are filled with something big enough to be about, which is trying to address climate change along with. Many, many other people that are doing similar work. So it's big enough to be about. So I'm I'm grateful for the path, not the one I would have chosen, though, and not the one I attempted to be on. But but this is the one I was given. So I'm glad for it. Well, I I don't want to lose track, and we're going to jump around to some different issues here.
0: But what is Republic En, and what, what what's the group all about?
1: We are conservatives reaching conservatives on climate change. Uh, we believe it's inherently conservative to want to conserve, to conserve the earth, to conserve the stability of its uh, weather systems and the uh, beautiful place to live and the where you can restore the purity of the earth. That's what we think is an ethic deeply rooted in the minds of many conservatives. Things have gotten a little bit sideways on climate because many conservatives heard a sort of a regulatory message and they're trying to regulate our very breath and they're telling us these scare stories about how the world's going to end in 12 years or whatever and so they react against that and they turn it off so we try to help them turn back on to the incredible opportunities in free enterprise solutions to climate change and the the incredible calling because you know this is a an opportunity to light up the world with more energy, more mobility and more freedom if we just play it right and if America would but rise to the occasion and lead the world to solutions. So we think there's a a message for the right. And uh, the good news is there are many people on the left that would agree. And the result is eventually we're going to bring America together and lead the world to a solution.
0: Okay, so I think with your organization, you're really trying to target younger conservatives who care about the issue of climate change. I'm actually the the plan, as I've been talking with, with Price, that I'm going to get a few of your younger members, and I'm going to interview them and do a, some short interviews and include it in, as part of this podcast. So I'm looking forward to interviewing them and kind of hearing from their perspectives. But is that really sort of a target demographic for your organization?
1: Well, we we want all conservatives, actually, but we do skew young. And that's because young people care more about climate, perhaps. They, they plan on living on the planet a bit longer than their grandparents. And so what we find is that young conservatives that are actual conservatives, in other words, not Populist nationalist. If it's a populist nationalist, we have a hard time reaching them because um, that's a doctrine of grievance that uh, we really don't subscribe to. We, we believe that there's there are tremendous opportunities out there. We don't think anybody's doing unto us or that we're victims in any way. Uh, we think that we're, we're full citizens and we got to rise to the occasion. So if you're a populist nationalist, you probably aren't very interested in republicen.org But if you're an actual conservative and you're young you particularly want your party to leave behind the grumpy old party affect and adopt the grand opportunity party affect and so we find that conservatives that are young typically come to us we have a little bit harder time with their parents and uh, frankly a hard time with their grandparents um but but we wish to reach all of those age groups because We think it's inherently conservative to act on climate change.
0: All right. So your group promotes free market solutions. And a a typical day for you, you have, I guess, two kind of different sides that let's let say people want to do something in climate change, but it really is this radically different approach than you're recommending. You've talked in the past about cap and trade not being the way to go. And then on the other side, you have conservatives who don't necessarily even think climate change is an issue. What kind of dominates your time? What do you find yourself being more involved in?
1: What what part of those discussions? Well, actually, those two are connected because the reason that people we we think that one of the prime reasons that people, um, especially conservatives, end up denying the existence, the reality of climate change is they don't think there's a solution that fits with their values. I think the psychiatrists and psychologists call that solution aversion. And it sounds nuts until you think about it. And then you realize, oh, we all do this all the time. If we don't think there's a solution that fits with our values, we doubt the existence of the problem. So uh, here's the plan of surgery for that back problem uh, you're having. First, uh, we're going to take your head off. After we got your head off, we're going to work on your spine. Then we're going to put your head back on. And You're going to say to me, thanks, doc. I'm feeling a lot better. I don't have a back problem because what you've just described is nuts. You're not going to take my head off. And so what conservatives heard about climate is that they're going to attempt to regulate everything. Uh, They're going to destroy the economy. They're going to regulate our very breath. And they want us to do that because of climate change. Well, the solution is anathema. So I must not have a problem. So those two things you just uh, enunciated are actually connected. And so what we strive to do is say, okay, let's start talking about solutions. Let's show you the solutions. And the example I often give is just the power of free enterprise innovation. And this is geared toward conservatives, but there's so many progressives that would agree with this that, you know, the the example of cell phones um, and this technology you and I are using right now of Skype. It didn't exist, you know, what, what, 15 years ago, but it exists now. And and so my first cell phone was a bag phone um, for my 1992 campaign. It worked in two of the three counties that I was seeking to represent. It cost about a dollar a minute to talk on and the battery didn't last. You had to keep it plugged into the cigarette lighter and it was in a bag with a cord on it. And you picked it up out of a cradle and you talked on the phone if you had a dollar a minute. I mean, that's not that long ago. Look what's happened now is so many of us have these phones in our pockets that have more computing capacity than what we use to land people on the moon. And so it's pretty amazing what's happened there. And so when you start thinking about, gee, that happened, didn't it? And it can happen in energy that right now we've got central power plants, and they have these long lines, and and they're run by coal or natural gas. But what of the future where there's a distributed energy system and dark villages that currently fester with murderous thoughts toward the West are lit up at night and their people are, are getting energy from the sun. They're storing it in batteries that power their lives. They don't, they leapfrog our technology just like they leapfrogged telecommunications. Wow. It's exciting. And so when conservatives start hearing that, and they see the place for free enterprise, and they see that innovation can really get us there in energy, just like it got us there in telecommunications, then they can say, "Hey, I, I want part of that."
0: You've spoken out quite a bit on the the cap and trade that they tried to pass. I think it was like 2009. What are your thoughts in comparison of that cap and trade, and you know, going back a bit further with the first President Bush's cap and trade associated with you know the acid rain issue? What what were the differences? Why that seemed to be a popular approach? It had a bipartisan approach. And can you tell us the differences? That in its own way is kind of like a big government approach. Why why were those different?
1: Yeah, the difference is the number of point sources. In the case of acid rain, there were really very few people making the stuff that was causing the trouble. You could get them in in a typical hotel ballroom and say, okay, now, guys and gals, here's the cap. You trade underneath that cap. In the case of climate change, it's different. There are at least seven billion point sources because there's seven billion of us walking around on the planet, and then you add all the energy uses we have, and you you have some sort of multiple of three or four or five or ten to those point sources and so you can't fit those people in a hotel ballroom and you can't say to them, "Here's a cap I'll trade underneath it." We think it's much more uh, simple really to just say, here's a price on carbon dioxide. We're going to attach that price. And we say, let's have America start that. We start it. And then we Im- basically make it in the world's interest to follow us by saying, you're importing stuff to America? Fine. You'll pay our carbon tax on entry through our, our ports. Oh, you don't like that? You want to challenge us in the World Trade Organization? Go ahead. Go ahead. You're going to lose based on precedence in the chemical industry. After you've lost and you're still paying our carbon tax on entry, now make your own decisions. Uh, China, do you want to continue to pay our carbon tax as a tariff on entry into the United States? Or do you want to collect your own carbon tax in China, in which case your goods would come through our ports without any adjustment and you'd have the money in Beijing? Now, as long as you want to keep on importing and not have your own carbon tax, we're, we're happy as clams with that because you're going to be helping us with our enormous deficit and terrible debt. But you probably are going to find it in your interest to collect that tax at home. And then the whole world is in on this. And then you have those seven billion people I was just talking about seeing the true cost of energy. The fully internalized cost as the economists talk about it. In other words, no more dumping into the trash dump of the sky for free. Now you gotta pay the damages you're causing there. Just like when you take trash to the city dump, if you're a trash hauler, you gotta pay a tipping fee for the space you're taking up. That's a solid conservative idea that also progressives understand and agree with. Is you listen, you're taking up space in our city dump. You gotta you gotta pay for that space uh, because we're gonna have to build another dump after you filled it up, and we don't want to pay more taxes in order to do that. You gotta pay for what you use. Same thing in the sky. So you use up uh, allotment of carbon in the sky. Well, pay for it, and then that changes the economics of. All the competing technologies to the incumbent fuels, and the reason those Challenger fuels currently need props, um, subsidies of various sorts, is that the, the biggest subsidy is being granted to the incumbent fuels because they're not paying that tipping fee. So if you uh, assess them with that fee, then all those competing technologies become more economic. And then you have us in the liberty of enlightened self-interest, seven billion of us seeking our self-interest, seeking that innovation. Um, It makes sense at that point. And then all kinds of new technologies become possible. And like I said, this is obviously high-octane, conservative, free enterprise uh, talk I'm giving here. But it's also what many progressives would agree with is that we need the dynamism of the free enterprise system at its full speed in order to solve climate change.
0: Well, I want to come back to some of those discussions, but I want to step back and just a, a little bit more about your history. So you're from South Carolina and you and you represented the, the district there, I think, at two separate occasions. But tell me a little bit about that district in South Carolina. What, what was it like? What were the people like?
1: Um, it's a wonderful conservative district with um, people believe in uh, hard work and saving and investing and honest work. And I keep on coming up with uh, words that indicate work ethic because that's what I kept hearing from employers. I remember asking a ball bearing manufacturer why they came to South Carolina. And they said, well, we figured that the textile industry would be declining and that there's a strong work ethic here. And so, yes, we don't have any Steel manufacturing here. We don't have their suppliers, if you will, here, but they said we knew there'd be a great workforce uh, with a real work ethic. And, um, and it also helps. We have relatively cheap land and relatively low taxes, of course. So that's the district. Uh, It's a district that uh, is the home to uh, BMW in America. BMW makes cars here. Uh, BMW stands for Bubba makes wheels. And so that's why why they came here, you know, not really. It has something to do with Bavaria or something, but anyway. And Michelin's North American headquarters is here. Uh, So a great manufacturing district and and, um, a growing district. And a place also rooted a great deal in faith and family and a great place to raise kids. Really a a district with an awful lot of uh, future to it.
0: Well, I've been in South Carolina quite a few times, but mainly we'd go down to Polly's Island on the beach, like a, a lot of people from outside yeah. South Carolina. We know that yeah. it served uh, tourists very well. Okay. So on that note, I know you've told this story, but I think for my listeners, it's important if you, the, there was a, a moment where you were running in your primary, I think this was 2010, where the issue of climate change came up a, against your opponent. And it was really sort of this kind of
1: key moment in a, you lost that election. Could you Could you describe that? Oh, yeah. Actually, interesting that you're asking about that, because uh, not many people ask about that. They ask about the, my conversion, Doug, you know, how was it I came to uh, care about? <laughs> you seem like a logical man, so your conversion was an easy story to get. But uh, <laughs> but the uh, I think the story you may be referencing in 10 was this. We had a... Uh, there's a big tent meeting that turned out not to be quite big enough for, for me over in uh, Landrum, South Carolina. And uh, the local uh, Christian talk radio host asked, uh, yes or no, is climate change real? And what would you do about it? I had a terrible habit of answering questions. And so I said, yes, it's real. <laughs> well, uh, boo hiss came the crowd and it went on to uh, two other opponents and they basically said no one of them actually said this is where brother bob has gone wrong again and you know he's so it, he he turned it into not just a political heresy but a religious heresy and then my, my the third on the list the guy that ultimately beat me said essentially he said in as much as it hadn't been proven to the satisfaction of the people i represent i would represent the answer is no there's no human causation in climate change oh boy um and so I, I remember sitting there thinking, you know, that was a particularly good answer. Um <laughs> quite political. Not exactly gonna win your profile encourage courage award, but but it is a uh it surely was a good political answer. <laughs> that, I mean, that is an amazing moment. What I
0: mean, these are your constituents, and I mean, what really was kind of going through your head? That I mean, you understood this. You put some effort into understanding the issue, and then people were booing you around. Really, this gigantic issue. I mean, at that moment, what were what were you thinking?
1: Well, it, you know. Uh, it happens that way, right? I mean, people that – well, here's what's happening. Uh, let's remember what the context was. This is 2010, the 2010 race, and we were in the darkest days of the Great Recession. In the fall of '08, the wheels had come off the financial system. The ATM machines were perhaps not going to work on a particular Monday morning in the midst of that crisis. Literally there was a thought that you'd go to the bank, you'd put in your card, and the ATM machine would not ATM would not give you money. That's how close we were to real trouble. I mean, we were in real trouble, but we were in we were on the verge of panic. What I think happened there is that people who would otherwise be able to entertain longer term threats and think logically and reasonably about how to address those threats. Became just aware of their hemorrhaging, um, and uh, so for them, climate change was sort of the slow-growing cancer, and their main problem was the hemorrhaging that was coming from the loss of jobs, the the, the home equity problems, and you know the banking system collapse. And so to them, I think I sounded like I was, you know, giving advice about that long term cancer, while they were saying, please, English, just get a tourniquet on this thing. You know, I mean, really, we got to stop the bleeding. We'll come back later. That's that slow growing cancer. So I I think that's what was going on. But if you were to have that same sort of meeting, same
0: tent happening today with the economy doing relatively well, there is a good chance that you're still going to get booed.
1: Yeah, I think so. That's that's the challenge is this is set in as a cultural problem, hasn't it? It's not a um uh, I heard David Brooks saying recently something. I think I'm pretty sure it's Brooks uh, saying something very uh, reasonable, as usually he is. He, he said, uh, and I understand this is a cultural, not a political moment. This is not a um so it has become that it's become a cultural marker. If you uh sort of believe in climate change, then you're outing yourself as some sort of liberal and if you reject the science of climate change you're you're substantiating your position as a member in good standing in conservative circles Um, but that's by the way is changing that really those what i just gave you right there is the it it still would be the case under that tent you're right Uh, that would be the case but what's happening is the tribal leaders of those, of that tribe, my tribe in Washington are actually writing and disseminating different talking points now. And the best evidence of that is the uh, February 6th press release from the Republicans on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. The headline said, Republicans are focused on realistic solutions to climate change. The next week, Frank Lucas, the Republican ranking member on the Science Committee, invited as a witness Joe Make-It. He's an actual climate scientist who agrees with the scientific consensus. It was the first time in a decade that a Republican witness at the Science Committee was with the scientist. (laughs) Literally in a decade. So... There are some guys and gals in Washington trying to disseminate, just have printed up these new talking points, and they are distributing them. Um, but they haven't gotten down to the tent yet. Uh, that tent still has the old talking points. And so that's our job at RepublicIan.org, is we're trying to help the people in the tent uh, hear the new talking points. And, you know, I want I, I want to drill
0: down into that, this. and. Climate change and religion, there's two topics you want to avoid at most of, like, uh, cocktail hours. But I, I – and I shared with you earlier, I lived in Georgia, and I used to go to an evangelical church, and it, it still – it stumps me that this – you know, what sort of happened. And, I you know, the broader issue of – you're from South Carolina, and, you know, that you think of – and I don't want to get into discussion about President Trump. I mean, you must be surprised by why such – there was such an easy pivot for the evangelical community kind of get behind – president trump over the last two and a half years and of course it's related to climate change and his position on it sort of why did that happen what what is it that it was such an easy pivot for probably for someone that typically they wouldn't even want to spend too much time with
1: yeah it's you know i think that donald trump has capitalized on fear and that's i yeah that's what he's done he's he's capitalized on on fear and I think many of those, well, first of all, let me uh, make sure to make make a distinction between uh, the polling data that I've seen from church going evangelicals as opposed to the polling data for people who broadly identify as evangelical. And there's a difference. Uh, those church going evangelicals, in other words, people that actually are part of a faith community that are actually trying to read the book and live the love there, they're actually not as enamored with Donald J. Trump as the folks who describe themselves, and it's just an oxymoron, but as cultural evangelicals. I don't know what in the world a cultural evangelical would be, because the whole idea of being an evangelical is bringing the good news maybe to people who have not yet heard it. So it seems rather strange to consider oneself culturally evangelical. But there are apparently a lot of people out there who do uh, fit that oxymoronic category. And so but uh, so among that category, I think what you've got, in other words, the people who see themselves as culturally evangelical, I think they feel threatened. Um, They feel um, that the left is. Telling them how they should act and believe and speak and they are rejecting that and they have found in Donald Trump somebody who is more in your face than they would ever choose to be themselves. But they sort of they sort of see themselves as uh, being protected by him in sort of a in what I see is a strange sort of way. But for them, I think what they're seeing is, well, we need somebody Who's that mean? You know, I, I, I um, once uh, my, my law firm in Greenville, South Carolina, used to represent Bob Jones University. And uh, Bob Jones, the uh, uh, junior, uh, used to say that if you're going in the devil's courtroom, you need the devil himself to represent you. And so uh, he chose one of my former partners, who's now dead, who was a, a who, who smoked like a chimney and drank like a fish and cussed like a sailor. And um, so. <laughs> So. So Bob Jones said that you need the devil himself to go into the devil's courtroom. And so I think for a lot of those cultural evangelicals, that's who they see Donald Trump as is my former law partner, who who's, I said now, sadly, to edit, but uh, he's he, a very senior guy aged aged out, I guess. But but for the others, I think there's a lot of discomfort about Donald Trump. They, they cringe at what he say, says and does. But they're happy with the Supreme Court appointments, and the question is how many of them will continue to see that as a good deal, and how many of them will see it as selling their birthright for a mess of pottage? So.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that answer, and I know it's complicated, and I've spent a lot of time in the Southeast, and I've gone to churches, and it's it still stumps me. And Like I have family members in, in my orbit that are enthusiastic Trump supporters, and they are regular churchgoers, and it just leaves me a bit bewildered, and that's why uh, these questions I have for you, just for, I have a lot of secular listeners, as you can imagine, environmentalist types, and just it's it's a curious thing. It's a culturally different thing for them. And so you've probably been to plenty of Bible study courses. You go to a church, and then a good church is going to have a lot of sort of separate Bible studies, and I've been in those. And the Christians in those Bible studies are some of the most humble people you are ever going to meet. I mean, the humility is just oozing from them. You're just dazzled by it, and they're revealing things, and they're good people But then they step out of those Bible studies, and then you start talking about these bigger issues. And let's say climate change, all of a sudden, they are the experts. And there's this arrogance that just rears its head. And for me, it's just you went from being this humble Christian servant to just pretending that you know the nuances of atmospheric science. Why is there that sort of giant kind of contrast?
1: Oh, that's a great question and very insightful I think I think it's it has to do with our our, our sense of confidence I believe uh, I think what you're seeing there is when they're in that Bible study, they were confident about the grace that they were reading about in those words and they believe in those words and therefore in that confidence they're able to show uncertainty or show vulnerability but when when we're Basically, uh, confronted with something that we're not sure of and that we think might be beyond us, we, we quite often, I think, reach for something that and, and particularly when somebody is standing over us saying we're stupid, that causes us just to dig in in some place and to um, and and to get louder rather than to get more open. You know, I, I don't know about you, but if I'm if I'm on the short end of an argument with. A family member, I typically just get louder, right? <laughs> because you realize you've got the short end of the argument. And so you compensate with volume. Usually, if somebody's very confident and they're certain of themselves, they don't raise their voices and they just know that the facts are the facts. And so I think that's, that explains it. It's actually uh, an insecurity that's causing the compensating reaction of uh, volume and um, and false certainty, because they're really not certain, but they just are feeling attacked. And, and part of, for many of your listeners, if you describe them as, as uh, secular environmental types, let's say, it may be an ins- a point of instruction there or an application, as we say, you know, in a sermon, this would be the sermon application, is if you're on the left, is it? There's some way that you could turn down that threat perception for that evangelical you're talking to? I mean, could you figure out a way to not threaten them so much, not stand over them and say, you're stupid, you're the last kid in the class to get it? Because it's not very winsome uh, to do that to them. For example, you know, uh, the thing, I mean, uh, this seems extraneous, but uh, people... They'll they'll hear it. I've I've had that happen to me uh, repeatedly. People people get a sense of evolution. Oh my, the question of evolution. Oh my, we got to get with that. We got to figure out whether he's a believer in evolution or not. And and they don't realize it, but there is a church of evolution, and it is just as evangelical as a standard evangelical church. In fact, they have some of the same practices. You've got to come down front. While we're singing all 17 verses of I just evolved and you've got to sign the statement saying that you believe only in a a godless evolution. There could be no creator. It's only godless evolution. And you must believe that. Okay, so there's no actual church of evolution and there is no actual song just as I evolved. But it really is like that. And so when you present somebody who believes in a creator with that insistence that you accept fully the concept of godless evolution, you're threatening them. And you're you're really, why do that? If all we wanted them to do was act on climate change with us, don't turn them into a, a person who's got to reject their notion of a creator God. Just accept their notion of a creator, God, and, and talk to them about creation care. Don't insist on their subscription to your godless evolution.
0: I get that, and I know that it happens a lot. But just my experience, I've worked with environmental groups and a lot of different people in this space. And most of the time, it seems like our side bends over backwards. When I worked in Georgia it was an environmental group. And when we went out, there was just no calling anyone stupid. We were just really going out of our way to want to work with people and sort of meet their needs. And so I I don't know. I think I disagree somewhat. That happens out there. You know, maybe there's some groups out there that are really just being very aggressive. But I think there's a lot of rank and file groups working on these issues that are being very respectful. And then again, back to this notion of where's that humility? These scientists who aren't saying anything, they don't care. They just want to do their science. This is what they're saying, and you you can't even sort of show some humility to that. Maybe they know more about this than I do, and maybe you're just watching Fox News or you're saying something on Facebook. But I, you would think the Christians would be so geared toward being humble and deferring to the experts on this issue, and it's actually opposite. And, and I'm sort of generalizing. Maybe Catholics are a bit more prone to listen, but yeah, you you understand what I generally what I'm talking about,
1: maybe. <laughs> yeah, but 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 I think that. It's surely it's not. Nobody literally says you're stupid. You're the last kid in the class to get it. I mean, no, I've never heard anybody say that. And I've never heard anybody say, listen, you've got to sign this statement. Believe you believe solely in a godless evolution. I've never seen that. But I'm talking the nuance of it that it, I find as a person of faith who believes in that creator, God, that my faith is sort of under fairly constant assault. By the people that I hang with in this climate change work, it's not overt. It's rather, rather nuanced. It's, it's a, it's the language choice. It's the constant, you know, uh, just, just this thought of we're on our own. We're the masters of our own fate. There is no God. There is no creator. We, we're just animals like every other animal. It's rather subtle. And so it's a constant. I find it a a constant assault on my faith, actually, and I've got to sort of uh, repair to to sort of a safe place of faith. That's, I guess, what uh, church is, is a hospital typically runs on Sunday mornings. This is fascinating for me. I want to get your
0: I- opinion on this. And so when I did the work, when I was working for the environmental group in Georgia, I went all over rural Georgia. I was in South Georgia all the time. And I remember one example. And I just, i curious your thoughts on, I, I had lunch with my boss and then there was someone working for like the state wildlife department, just a good old boy, classic South Georgia kind of guy. And we were eating lunch at this tiny little dive. And then just before we ate, he's just like, all right, let us, you know, give thanks to the Lord or something. We all held hands and he said a prayer. And at the time, I, th- I sort of thought about it in two different ways. First off, like, culturally wow this is really cool look i'm in southern georgia this guy's doing this i'm learning something but then on the flip side it's just like this guy's a state employee he doesn't know i could be a muslim i could be just a raging atheist why is he doing this this is very disrespectful and what what do you think in that sort of situation is it was that appropriate in that sort of because i guess i'm pushing back against your concept that you go around i think your district you're going to find a church every two blocks and so i don't know if that's so much under assault as it really is
1: yeah, um, well, I think there is an overestimate of the of the assault. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not even though I, what I just said is true, that I, I do feel sort of this uh, this subtle erosion of uh, my faith concept when I'm out and about in the climate uh, community. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. but but it's not enough to cause me to run into the arms of Donald J. Trump. <laughs> right. In fact, in, in fact, I run the other way because I think that uh, gee. If that's a savior with skin on him, I don't want a savior like that. I, I, I'm running the opposite direction from that guy. But and I don't see I, he's not the strong man that I need. I don't need him. And but, yeah, it's it's just And uh, answer to your question. It's like it's like this. I think that I, I did a, a five. I had the opportunity to be in Iraq five times, Afghanistan four times in my time in Congress, uh, the second go round. Uh, the second six years I had in Congress. And on one of those occasions, I remember flying out of Amman, Jordan after being in Baghdad. And I looked out the window of the airplane and I said to uh, folks, I, I said to Jim DeVent, actually, who was leading the trip. He's a senator at the time and he's from Greenville, South Carolina. And I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. So I said to him, look, Jim, it looks like Greenville. There's a church on every corner. <laughs> Except it's a mosque, um, and so, and really, on every corner there was a green light gl- glowing in the prayer tower, you know, and and so, uh, what followed was a fascinating discussion as we came across the ocean, Sam Brownback, Rob Portman, Jim Dement, and me. Wow, <laughs> and we talked about really it's where I formed a real uh, a strong notion of the problem is when you couple faith with power. The genius of our framers of the Constitution was they wanted faith free, but without any state power. Because when you put faith and power together, you trash the state and you, I think, destroy the faith even faster than you destroy the state. And that's what's happened in the Middle East is you have a terrible state. And you have a corrupted faith um, because of the coupling of faith and power, faith must be left free. And it's a it's a free volition. It's it's your choice to believe or not to believe. And no one should force you into a choice or into declaring some allegiance to one faith or another. It's just all free. And if you do that, then you it's it's really a beautiful thing. That's what that's what America should be. And but some people I think do feel that they're being imposed upon. Surely uh, you know the people of non-faith think they're being imposed upon by say let's hold hands and pray here. Um, I can understand that. And I I wouldn't do that uh, to somebody that I didn't know just for talking to you i was at lunch with uh, three people who i knew were of faith and one of them prayed for us and that was appropriate because they were all four uh, share the same faith but I, I i wouldn't have done that as you what you just described with the the guy that i didn't know and you know didn't know whether i shared his faith or not but but mostly just don't couple faith with power uh, that's a dangerous thing.
0: On, on a side note, there was a great editorial in The Washington Post today talking just about how evangelicals and they're partnering up with Trump. They're now allowing Trump to sort of be the chief evangelical. And you're not really being able, you know, you're supposed to like put get the word out there. And if you're letting him sort of get the word out there it's not good for the long-term viability of your religion. So it was really good. I highly recommend related to a lot of things that you said here. It's
1: surely the case. I cannot imagine the damage that Donald J. Trump is doing to the spread of the gospel in the United States and around the world. If that's what Christianity looks like, it's revolting. And I, I just can't imagine anybody being attracted it's to that message. It is most certainly not the message of the cross, the message of the gospel as presented in scripture. It, he, in fact, Donald Trump is the antithesis of Jesus, the utter antithesis. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how so many people. Well, exact, again, there's a difference between evangelicals who actually go to church, who would who I think many would agree with what I have just said. And then there's. Whatever that category is called cultural evangelicals who don't go to church, who have really very little idea of what's in scripture and very little idea about who the person of Jesus was and very little idea about his teachings. <laughs> How it is that they have identified Donald Trump as the guy is, is beyond me. Uh, <laughs> I have a very close
0: family member, probably goes to church two, three, four times a week, reads the Bible daily, and has a Trump 2020 sticker on his car. And I, <laughs> I'm just left, you know, jaw
1: dropping. Yeah, and and that okay, so that is a category that I, I think that is worth uh, confronting that person and asking <laughs> them for what is it? How do you how do you explain that, particularly? You know, I think uh, for for somebody who knows him well, as you do, as a family member, is just uh, ask him, how do you how do you square that? How do you square the braggadociousness of Donald J. Trump with the humility of Jesus? How do you how do you square his celebration of wealth with Jesus's complete lack of interest in wealth? Show me that coin whose image is on it, he says. Yeah, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. I mean, where <laughs> love your enemies. Uh, uh, in in Deuteronomy, treat the alien as you would the native born. For you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord. How does any of that square? Ask your cousin or whatever that family member is. How does it square with that sticker you've got on your truck? It. <laughs> I to tell you, you know, it's a futile conversation,
0: and I tell people like even though people evangelicals think they have sort of a big promoter in Trump and power, and they have power, you have hit the accelerator on America becoming more secular. You just don't realize it. So it's just that's what's going to happen. Bob, we you know we we kind of went on this, and this has been fabulous. But I want to get a few more questions related to climate, <laughs> climate change. Yeah, yeah, back to
1: climate.
0: No, but just uh, one of the questions I, I asked around. I was said I was talking to you, and I and the question that kind of came up that I thought was most relevant is that especially say members of your organization and i think my listeners would be interested in this is that let's say you are conservative you are about free markets and but even on issue i think with you it's just like even on the abortion issue you're still very conservative when it comes to gun rights you have all these issues packaged around but then it comes to climate change and right now the democrats seem to be the only kind of game in town when it comes to voting on legislation and real manifestations of doing something on climate change how is a conservative What are they supposed to do? Because they're not out. Most conservatives aren't out there doing things on climate change, but they could vote on people who are. Are you voting for Democrats? You kind of reveal that. How, How does someone kind of make that decision when they have all these other areas that are important to them?
1: Well, I think the most important thing that somebody can do that's actually supporting, say, a Republican member of Congress or something is just say to them at the next $25 barbecue, really, Joe or Sally or whoever, do something about climate change, okay?" That's all you got to say. You don't have to give them the exact policy prescription or you don't have to be the expert on the impacts of climate change. You can just say, let's do something about that. Surely we had an answer, don't we? You know, it's it's a little bit like the perhaps apocryphal story, of, but it's a good story anyway. So don't don't let the facts hold you back from a good story. Right. Is it supposedly Laura Bush said to George on the way back into the White House one time after being on a rope line where. Just a number of people introduced themselves saying, hi, I'm Jim, I'm gay. Hi, I'm Sam, I'm gay. Hi, I'm, you know, she was walking back in the White House with him and said, George, stop attacking these people. They're our friends. Hmm. And so if we had more people at Republican barbecues just saying to Joe or Sally, you know, how about do something about this? I think they'd feel the support. That's our whole Hmm. view of how this works at Republican.org is we're out to show Joe and Sally that there is a constituency out here that's made up of conservatives that wants want a free enterprise answer to climate change and that that we exist and once uh, that that constituency is made known then the politicians will lead it um, it's a it's a sad reality politicians typically follow they don't lead and so establish a constituency and the politicians will run around out front to lead it where it's already going and so that's what we strive to do at republician.org.
0: this podcast focuses mainly on how we're going to adapt to climate change and i know a lot of the work that you're doing is offering solutions around the carbon issue but has the issue of adaptation come up and i think of south carolina hurricanes flooding events are you hearing about it more is it an area that your organization is sort of getting involved in
1: yeah, well, you know, I think that uh, adaptation actually helps us in the goal of getting policy that is aimed at mitigation of climate. Because, you know, if you start putting up a seawall on the battery in Charleston, listeners who might not know it, it's, it's, a, it's most beautiful place in Charleston, you know, and it's, it's, it's there at the end of the peninsula and it's historic and there are these beautiful homes down there. And if you start putting up this seawall, uh, to a height that, say, is going to accommodate, you know, sea level rise over the next fifty years, it, it might be really helpful. Uh, focus the mind as people realize, "Oh my gosh, you mean the water is going to get up that high?" Oh wow! I guess we better do something. We we think that it's, it's always helpful when people are talking adaptation because it, it causes uh, the the companion uh, question to be raised, which is. Yo, is there anything we could do to turn off the spigot that's uh, filling up the bucket? Um, I mean, it's we're so uh, yeah, we got to build the bucket higher, but uh, could we turn the spigot off? So we're grateful for that those adaptation moments because it, it does cause people to focus
0: just hear some feedback for you i hear from listeners all the time and actually i had a listener in this as a single anecdote but it's it seems to be coming up more is that someone wrote me saying he found the podcast and he said he was just sort of a raging climate denier but he was curious about this whole emphasis on adaptation and he started listening to multiple episodes and he wanted to talk and so we arranged a phone call and he said he pivoted from being a climate denier to just more of a skeptic with more questions but definitely open-minded and and the way he explained it to me was like he really liked what I was talking about with this, I don't talk about the signs rarely at all. It's just, I'm, we're beyond that. It's just like, well, how are we adapting to it? And he really liked the proactive nature of those conversations. There wasn't sort of the barking at him. And I, that was very enlightening to me. And I, and I hope and people in the adaptation universe kind of think that the way to true mitigation will be through adaptation is that you start, we're having to deal with it now. Well, let's not, like you said, keep, you know, like, keep digging a hole here your organization i hope it becomes a tool for you just to even to talk about it
1: yeah and i think it's back to that question about uh, agency or efficacy and the uh and the overcoming of the solution aversion what i think you gave that listener is some hope that that there were some solutions out there and then that gave them the ability to, in, to more honestly engage with the question about uh, climate uh, changing because, yeah, it gives, them, it gives them the hope that there's something that can be done uh, rather than, you know, what, what we know from, from our colleagues at uh, George Mason University, Ed Maybach and uh, Tony Lacerowitz at Yale have done, you know, this great study, uh, Global Warming Six Americas. And what they know from that study is that um, over all six Americas, from dismissive Dan to alarmed Alice, you know these six personality types they've identified, is if you increase the sense of efficacy, uh, you increase engagement over all six of those personality types. So that's what you were doing. You were you were making it so that there's a talk of solutions um, that uh, seemed practical and available. And then it caused uh, perhaps that listener to be able to engage. I want you to give some advice to
0: my listeners. I have people that you know, I have these conversations when I go to conferences and such is that when people are out there working with local governments or working with farmers are literally on the ground doing adaptation resilience related work. Many times they don't even mention the words climate change. They'll be like, oh, we're going to have to make this area more resilient to flooding. And they kind of purposely avoid it. And I don't like that. I think in some ways you're being condescending to those people you think you're being respectful you think you're not trying to create any friction but at the same time if you're ignoring that kind of elephant in the room you're you're, you're actually being condescending and suddenly people are going to kind of i think understand this what would you recommend to them as they're talking to people around these issues of adapting to climate change should they even mention climate change
1: yeah, you know, our, our view at republician.org from our inception has been we don't shrink from the science and we don't shrink from calling it climate change. And we also just go ahead and call it a carbon tax. I mean, it's okay if you want to call it a fee and dividend or whatever, but it's a fee or no, no, it's at the end of the day, it's a tax. It's just that we're pairing it with a dollar for dollar reduction in other taxes or a dividend. So there's no growth of the government and we're applying it at the borders. So we get the whole world in on it. So yes, it's a carbon tax. Yes, it's climate change. And yes, the science is real. Um, So, you know, I think that the the reason that I would generally agree with what you've said is that if we're going to have a solution at the scale of the problem, then we need to name the problem. It's not just a flooding problem of this particular field or this particular town. It's a problem of worldwide scope and it needs a worldwide solution. And we need to get busy because, yeah, you can fix this flood right here, uh, this flooding problem for this particular town. But, yo, Greenland is melting. And one third of sea level rise that we've experienced is because of that. And if it accelerates, there's going to be more. And when low line dwellers pick up and move in mass migration patterns into neighboring countries, some of which don't like the, each other, you, you can see some real clashes. And some of those are nuclear armed states. <laughs> so this is serious business. And it's, it's so we, we ultimately need to be talking a solution at the scale of the problem and not, not trying to hide it from people. And uh, you know, I, it seems to me that uh, you know it's sort of like. But I mean, it's understandable why it is that we we would delay or why we would look for small things. We've done this before in World War II, for example. We were giving Winston Churchill some boats, some ships on a lend-lease program. Uh, we were encouraging him on, uh, yeah, Winston, keep your head down over there. The bombs are falling, you know. And it wasn't until we were attacked. At Pearl Harbor, that the sleeping giant was awakened, and that's when Winston Churchill knew that, the, that he had won the war. Is Americans have now come into it, and it was going to be over for Adolf Hitler. That's what it's going to take on climate, is America the indispensable has to wake up. And when it wakes up and enters this fight, we're going to solve it. And now, uh, are there baked-in problems? Yes. Uh, it's like we've been smoking a long time, and there we got to have emphysema properly. We might have a little bit of lung cancer. But it always makes sense to stop smoking. And so now is the time to literally stop smoking with uh, fossil fuels and figure out a way out of this thing. Yeah, solution at the scale of the problem is what we need.
0: We are in sort of a dark time right now, but I have a feeling we're going to come roaring back, and uh, <laughs> that's the optimistic side of me. So you follow these things legislatively – Best case scenario when it comes to something big on climate change, be it a carbon tax, maybe even a cap and trade. I know you don't support that, but what's sort of like a likely pathway of something serious happening on climate change? Are you, you know, do you have any sort of like predictions?
1: Well, yeah. By the way, a well-designed cap and trade program—one that doesn't involve all the complexities and the free giveaways and and the lack of effective border adjustment like Waxman-Markey did—a well-designed carbon tax and a well-designed cap and trade system have very little difference between them. Uh, Both are trying to establish a price on carbon dioxide. Is that going to happen in the current Congress? Uh, I doubt it. Really. My only hopes for this current Congress are two things, and they are largely being met, uh, thankfully. One is legitimate hearings and productive hearings, and that's happening. And the second is an increase in funding for ARPA-E kind of programs, energy research kind of programs, because what that would do is help show some of these technologies and prove them so that Again, over all six Americas, if you will, from alarmed Alice to de- dismissive Dan in the Global Warming Six Americas study, all of them would see those solutions and and increase their sense of efficacy and therefore be able to engage in climate discussions better. So those are our goals for this Congress: effective hearings, thoughtful hearings, which we're having. And then second, what seems to be on the skids for for could could happen on the track for happening, which is that uh, we that we have some increased funding for ARPA-E kind of programs. Um, and then in future Congress, uh, there might be uh, a pricing mechanism, but we don't expect that out of this Congress.
0: Okay, two last questions. Uh, and I've been saying this to nonprofit groups that I interview. Uh, why don't you guys have
1: a podcast? <laughs> you know, in fact, that was a conversation at lunch today. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> We do uh, various things, but we don't have a podcast. You're right. Uh, we, we should uh, consider that. I guess, uh, you know, there's sort of that uh, barrier to entry is, is a low barrier in terms of technology, but it's sort of like uh, how many people are going to be listening? So uh, we got to, but you got to launch in faith, do you? And, and then people start listening and spread the word it's a low-tech entry it costs almost
0: nothing you just have to have good content and your your stuff will grow and you'll be just surprised like if it's a good podcast i mean you got to be committed to it a year two years three years and then all of a sudden the type of listener that you're generating is going to be it's it's more than it's like not a radio listener it's not someone reading a blog it's a much different kind of creature and so i highly recommend it but you know it does take some good content but you're, you would have endless content if you just structured. Anyway, I'm an ambassador of podcasting, and I think a group like yours should have one. All right. Good. Well, that's good encouragement. Okay. Last question I ask all my guests. If you could recommend anyone to come on my
1: podcast, who would it be? Uh, Catherine Hayhoe. Have you had Catherine on? I've had her, and that was a great episode. Okay. So uh, let's see. You've had Catherine. Uh, how about uh, Marshall Saunders at Citizens Climate Lobby? I have not. Um, I'd I'd suggest Marshall. He's wonderful. Or Mark Reynolds at uh, Citizens Climate Lobby.
0: Any sort of other kind of Republican figures like yourself, though, that kind of unique? You
1: you have those networks Uh, that I don't. Yes. Jerry Taylor of the Niskanen Center. Have you had Jerry on? No, no. So uh, Jerry would be particularly good. Another one, Alex Flint of the Alliance for Market Solutions. And... The folks at Students for Carbon Dividends, they'd be good. Uh, I'm basically naming our <laughs> compatriots on the eco-right uh, as a balance to the environmental left. These are these are folks trying to message on the right. And Citizens Climate Lobby uh, has a, a conservative caucus, a guy named Jim Tolbert, who heads up the conservative caucus. He'd be great to have on as if in addition to Mark Reynolds or uh, Marshall Saunders.
0: I think I mentioned that email I had on Mark Morano and uh, Pat Michaels of the Cato Institute. So I've, uh, I've, I've sort of on the other side. I've had those conversations, too. They're always very
1: entertaining. Yeah. And I hope if you had Mark Murano on you, you looked up or have seen Merchants of Doubt. It's uh, you familiar with the film Merchants oh, of, of Doubt? Of course.
0: I haven't, I've seen parts of it, but I haven't seen the whole thing, but very familiar with the movie.
1: Yeah. So the part where Robbie Kenner, the filmmaker who also made *Food Inc.*, you know, um, then did *Merchants of Doubt* along with other a lot of other great films. I asked him, Robbie, how did you get Mark Murano to say all that? Did you give him some kind of date drug or something? I mean, how, why did he tell you all of that? It's incredible what Mark Murano says of himself about. What they're doing and how he's absolutely shameless about the hate emails that Catherine Hayhoe gets um, from his people. Just amazing. Oh, oh, and then the wonderful one, uh, James Taylor, uh, uh, who is actually Jerry Taylor's brother. James is at the Heartland Institute. And Robbie Kenner has him on film while uh, (laughs) he's saying something about how, yes, he took two courses in economics and two courses in science in college so he thinks he's particularly well suited to discuss climate change <laughs> and meanwhile there's a woman in a wheel elect, uh, electric wheelchair who is has a driving problem with her chair and she she drives herself into a wall just as as uh, James is saying this it wasn't intended as <laughs> as, a, as a punctuation mark on James's comment, but it becomes a. I've, I've screened the movie many times with many audiences, and nice. it's always quite a laughable moment when James is saying that. And then the woman sort of basically rams into the wall. You know, it's like, yeah, that James, I think you just hit the wall, buddy, with. That uh, <laughs> didn't make any sense. Two courses in economics and two courses in science. And you think that makes you right. capable of of competing with say people that have devoted their lives to understanding climate systems? <laughs> Well, with
0: Mark Morano, that's actually to date has been my most popular episode of all time because people kind of went behind the curtain. And the whole – the the thing that we did with Mark is that we set it up. It's, it wasn't going to be a debate about climate change. It was like what motivates you? And he was really honest. And afterwards, Randy Olson, who's a science communicator who knew Mark, he came on and dissected what Mark had said and saying this is why he's so effective. This is why he's you know crazy. And so – people loved that episode because it was really just, what do they, these people really think? And so it was a fascinating thing for me. Bob, thanks for coming on. You uh, you inspired me with what you're doing and, and I wish you luck as we need it. We need Republicans to come around on the issue of climate change, but thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, great to be with you, Doug. Thanks so much. Hey Adapters, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Representative Bob Inglis. They are doing their part to get everyone thinking about renewable energy. So here's your opportunity to solar power the world. The Sun Exchange is a solar micro-leasing platform that allows you to earn an income using solar power in emerging markets like South Africa. Through their online platform at thesunexchange.com, you can purchase solar cells for as little as $6 and then lease those cells to be installed on the roofs in sunny emerging markets. You'll get paid a monthly income for 20 years for the electricity your cells produce and the internal rate of return is estimated to be 10 to 12%. Just imagine, it's winter, you live in some frozen wasteland where you barely see the sun, or maybe you're in an apartment or condominium, and solar installation isn't practical. You are buying solar panels as part of an innovative leasing program where the actual panels are installed in emerging markets and you earn income from those solar panels. You don't have to worry about installing the entire solar project, you're buying individual cells. The Sun Exchange is giving AmericaDApps listeners a free solar cell when they make their first purchase. All you have to do is visit thesunexchange.com backslash adapts and you will receive a free solar cell when you make your first purchase. Join the solar revolution, earn income, and mitigate your carbon footprint. It's all good. To learn more, visit thesunexchange.com backslash adapts. The links are in my show notes. Okay, let's get back and join some of the representatives of Republic EN to learn what it means to be a conservative tackling climate change. Hey, Adapters. I'm fortunate to be interviewing some of the members of the group, Republic EN. I'm talking with John Sweeney. John works in real estate capital markets and devotes a considerable amount of his time to politics. He's active in Manhattan Republican politics. He volunteers for Citizens Climate Lobby and also serves as the New York spokesperson for Republic EN. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Great to be here, Doug. Thank
0: you. Uh, This is fantastic to have you on. I just had that conversation with Bob Inglis, and this is kind of a follow-up with some of the other members of Republic EN. But what do you do for Republic EN in New York?
2: Republic EN has a network of different volunteer spokespeople all around the country, and that title is really whatever you want to make of it. I've chosen to use it as a medium for social media activism, and also uh, I've written a couple of op-eds in The Hill and The National Review.
0: So you are, I think, a lifelong Republican. And at what point did climate change become an important issue for you?
2: Um, I don't remember exactly when it became an important issue in terms of the chronology, but I do. I I will tell you, at one point, I was a climate skeptic myself, like many Republicans, just based on the rhetoric that the Republican Party was feeding me. I believe what the leaders said. And that's where I was. I, I remember going to, to different events as uh, in at the University of Virginia and the college Republicans where they would bring on some climate skeptic to to talk to us about all the reasons why climate change was a hoax. And I've always been one who enjoys a good debate, but I like to be well prepped for my debates. So I usually will read my position whenever I am about to go into any type of discussion on a policy issue. I want to know what what the other side's talking points are gonna be, what their evidence is, and how I can refute it. If you look at my bookcase at home, it might be confusing what my politics actually are, because I've got Elizabeth Warren's book next to Tucker Carlson's and all kinds of different perspectives <laughs> just because I like to be informed that way. When I started looking into, okay, what are the what are the arguments for the the climate change community and and all these scientists, I kind of caught me off guard how much I Sort of found myself nodding my head and kind of agreeing with some of the findings and having a very difficult time refuting them. I also saw that the arguments for why climate change was a hoax were just all over the map. You know, they were, and, and supposedly scientific too. There, there were, theories like oh it's just based on the sun solar flares are causing the temperature to warm or it's just a natural cycle it goes up and down or actually there's global cooling and this is all a farce so I couldn't find any consistency in the climate hoax argument but I found a lot of consistency in the climate change global warming argument and that's whenever I realized that you know I'd been being fooled this whole time and so I uh the more I looked into it, the more alarmed I became, and I thought this was a stain on the Republican Party. I decided to do something about it, and that's when I found uh, Bob Inglis and in Republican.
0: Well, first off, just thank you for being open minded and doing your homework on the issue. That's that's very encouraging. My own exposure, I like to look at both sides, too. And a lot of times when you hear the skeptic talking point, they'll bring on an environmental economist or someone who might just be somewhat related to the environmental field, but it's not a climate scientist. And so I always thought that was sort of curious and that you mentioned that University of Virginia, when they bring in the speakers and such, you're like, what sort of person was that?
2: I actually don't remember who it was exactly, and I was trying to remember before before I got on the podcast with you, but That's but right. I don't remember his name, unfortunately.
0: When you're talking about climate change with fellow Republicans, it it still must become a, somewhat of a frustrating ordeal. How do you kind of handle that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it is a it is a little bit frustrating, you know. Whenever I first started getting involved in the what we call the eco right movement, I quickly discovered that it was one of the loneliest corners in American politics. I mean we <laughs> whenever we stick our necks out on anything, we tend to get grenades from every direction, right and left. So it's very easy to get discouraged, even depressed, but then you get reminded that there are others in the fight with you. And I think that's one of the big values of Republic EN and what Bob English has helped to build here is this sense of community and reinforcement where we can all stand together in terms of whenever I talk to when I talk to Republicans about it. I mean, the way the way I sort of came around on this issue is I've always kind of returned to the words of of Edmund Burke, who's a great conservative, as you may know. He has this quote that society is a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead and those who are yet to be born. That's sort of the bedrock conservative philosophy. We're working for everyone, not just people who are here to vote for us currently and we're trying to preserve society's resources for future generations. So to me, it's a no-brainer that conservatives should be conservationists. And if you actually talk to Republicans, that's usually what you find. Republican voters are just like other humans, and they want clean air, clean water, and a healthy environment. They might bristle at the idea of climate change, but that's because they associate it with liberals like Al Gore and Barack Obama. But when you drill down to it, I think most of them are, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the way there in terms of the solutions, you know, in terms of controlling pollution and even carbon emissions. You find that a lot of times the rhetoric and the tribalism uh, in today's political environment gets in the way of having serious conversations about solutions. But if you can cut through that, then it's uh, you can actually have a pretty constructive conversation. I mean a lot of republicans will accuse people like me on the eco-right of being closet liberals or the 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 term rhino often comes up. It's such a such an insult if you're a republican to be called a rhino a republican in name only. So no one wants that, but my answer to them is basically okay. So I think climate change is the most serious existential threat facing humanity today, right? And I'm still a republican despite that. So how conservative do you think I need to be on the other issues to rationalize that? And that's whenever you kind of get the you see like the light bulb go off and you can have a real conversation. Clearly, I didn't choose this issue because it's a straight ticket to power within the GOP. (laughs) So I must have had other reasons. And climate skeptics often become more receptive to hearing them when you frame it that way. That's typically how I approach it.
0: Well, you know, you know, it, I, I think don't think Republicans like to be reminded of this, but even Obamacare was modeled on legislation that the Heritage Foundation came up with in the nineties and so maybe 15 years from now, we'll be actually passing some climate legislation that was modeled by Republicans today. You never know. These kind of weird things happen. Yeah. Okay. So you recently wrote a piece for the National Review. That's great. I try to read the National Review on occasion, even though it's not necessarily something I read that often. And it's called, Could a Revenue Neutral Carbon Tax Be the First Step to Fight Climate Change? If you could kind of quickly summarize, what, we're, what point were you trying to make with that article?
2: The reason I like a carbon tax is because Carbon tax is a very efficient way for government to address a market failure. I believe in free markets. I think the market is the most efficient allocator of resources out there. But the government's job is to play referee and fix market failures. Carbon emissions are a market failure. We have a tragedy of the commons. There's no incentive to not emit carbon emissions when everybody else is. Carbon tax fixes that. It puts a price on the pollution and... If you structure it the right way, you can structure it in a way that fosters global cooperation so that other countries also implement their own carbon taxes. And rather than having to have accords and treaties, you actually have markets that are, that are doing the work for you. There's the old expression that money talks. And if you place a price on pollution and make it global, then you're going to see a lot of innovation. That doesn't require a lot of government subsidies, doesn't require mandates, doesn't require regulation. It's just the markets doing their thing and working out the problem themselves. That's the most efficient way to solve this problem.
0: In that piece with the National Review, you talk a a bit about the Green New Deal. It's certainly not your preferred method of dealing with climate change, but you have to admit to their credit, they're trying to offer a solution, even though it's not going to get sort of bipartisan support. All things being equal, I mean, I think you'd recognize, too, is that, you know, if this clean carbon tax came up as legislation, there's probably a good chance that a lot of Democrats are going to vote for it. And that's just a reality. And so it, it seems like the strategy is if you can get 10, 15 Republican senators, someone to propose this kind of clean carbon tax legislation, I bet the House goes along with it, even though it's controlled by the Democrats. I think they want to, even if it's just something as simple as that, I mean, do you think that's true? And I mean, is that a strategy going forward to actually getting something done?
2: Well, it's interesting because the I would say 10 years ago I would have full faith of what you said is correct, and that the the House, even a democratically controlled House, would go along with the idea of just a carbon tax. I think the reason that we have a tremendous opportunity within the Republican Party today to kind of take the lead on climate change is the Green New Deal has moved, and this demand by Democrats. To to focus not just on climate action but climate justice sort of working socialism into the idea of climate action it's shifted the Overton window so far to the left on climate action that it's actually created an opening for republicans to for republicans to embrace ideas that they previously rejected as too left-wing such as a carbon tax if you came up with a clean carbon tax bill in the house i think you'd get some republican votes i think you get some Democratic votes. But I also think you'd have rebellions on both sides. Uh, you would have on the far right Republicans who just don't want any type of tax. But on the far left, you'd have Democrats that say it doesn't go far enough to addressing the injustices of climate change. Uh, I actually whenever I published this this article in The National Review, one of the best moments was in when David Roberts at Vox asked me on Twitter and said that this was a weak solution and that you can expect a lot of these types of, you know, half measures from the right coming out and trying to block the path to something stronger, he said. I thought that was an interesting reaction. I'm used to normally getting flack from the right whenever I speak up on climate change from a Republican perspective. Drawing fire from the left was a new experience, and I thought probably a, uh, a good sign that I was doing something right
0: hey listen that was david roberts i've actually had him on the podcast a great conversation but that's david roberts and so like you know that's what he does but
2: oh yeah i knew i knew ex- i knew where he was coming from i didn't mind it at all i thought it was i thought it was really interesting
0: but i'm just saying the circles that i run in the climate change circles if the republicans managed to get through the senate a clean carbon tax bill it would be rapturous, I think, among most liberals, even though it might not meet what the Green New Deal, that aspirational part of that legislation. It's just like, come on, this is an incredible first start, and I think go, we want you to do that. We want you to get those senators to, to make that and call our bluff, and I'm saying our bluff, meaning people want some climate change legislation that that'll do for the time being, and I think there's – Please make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do like think but I'm is. saying. Make it happen. You you're talking to Republican and Republican circles and legislators and it's just listen, get that clean bill. And I, you'd be surprised what who kind of rallies behind it.
2: Yeah, well, it'll be it'll be interesting <laughs> to see what happens. I thought Trump's July 8th speech on his on his environmental record. I mean, a lot of people saw that as something of an Orwellian moment, but I actually thought it signaled a a watershed moment for the climate fight. I mean, the polls are starting to move on this issue and simple denialism is just not going to be a winning formula in 2020 or ever again. There's an old saying that politicians don't create political will, they just respond to it. And there is strong political will out there to take action on climate. And I think Republicans are starting to respond to it. Uh, You see it and the formation of the Roosevelt Conservation Caucus, Mar Alexander's New Manhattan Project, Francis Rooney's carbon tax bill that he's well, several carbon tax bills that he's now backed. So if Republicans want to recapture the House majority, they're going to have to win back America's suburbs and they're never they're never going to win them again without a proactive stance on climate change. So for that reason alone, I'm hopeful that we will get some action out of Republicans, if not this election cycle, perhaps in the next
0: You know, they're they're having this climate change debate, and only a certain amount of people can qualify for it. And it's become just an all democratic kind of thing. But it would be nice if they actually maybe invited, I mean, invite Trump, of course, but you know, Governor Weld is running for the presidency. Invite him. Let a Republican at least be a voice on that. It seems like a missed opportunity. Agreed. Okay, last question, and let's say for all my Republican listeners out there, and they, they want climate change to be more of an issue for their party, what would you recommend that they do? What can they do?
2: For any other Republicans listening, the number one thing you can do is to make a difference on this is to talk about it, and talk about it with other Republicans, figure out where their convictions are on the issue. When you When you really dig down to other Republicans' beliefs on this, It's mostly shaped by the rhetoric that they've heard from either leadership or the conservative media, and they're just following the cues. If you actually get down to it, they might be persuadable. And if you believe in climate change and you're a Republican, you should be talking to other Republicans about it. The most important thing we can do right now is be talking about it. It's the number one issue, I think, of our time I think history is going to judge all of us based on how we reacted in this moment. I don't want the Republican Party to be the ultimate villain in history whenever it's written on this topic. So if you share that view and you also want us to do something and want us to change our image, then go out and talk to other Republicans about it. Be vocal, challenge them and see if you can persuade some people and move some
0: minds. Okay, John, I'm very encouraged by the work that you're doing, and I hope you keep up the good fight. And and thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Doug. Hey adapters, I'm talking with Chelsea Henderson. Chelsea is the director of editorial content at Republic EN. Hi, Chelsea. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, Chelsea, so what do you do at Republic EN?
3: So I take all of the news that's been generated by anyone in the universe that we call the eco right. So someone who identifies as being conservative and is pro environment, pro climate change action. And I make sure that the world knows that these things are happening. These people are doing these things or taking these steps. And I do that a number of ways. I create daily alert that we put on the Republic EN blog that just might say, so, for example, I'm doing one right now on Senator Romney, who was on the radio over the weekend talking about why he thinks climate change is important and why he hopes that it's a man-made problem, because then it will be responsive to a man-made solution, human-made solution. And so I take this information and put it out on a daily basis. And then at the end of the week, I aggregate it all into a newsletter that goes out to anyone who wants to subscribe. And the whole purpose is really just to make people aware that there are good people out there who identify as conservative, who care about the environment and in particular care about solving climate change.
0: Okay. So that's a new one. Um, The idea that it's a man-made problem. So there must be a man-made solution. Yeah. I haven't heard that messaging before. That's interesting. So you are conservative and a Republican, I assume, but please correct me if I'm wrong. But at what point did climate change become an important issue for you?
3: I have always in my career worked on the environment. So I started working in the U.S. Senate back in 1997 I had an entry-level job and was answering phones and quickly worked my way up through a couple of different offices and ended up on the Environment and Public Works Committee. And I, before that, really had not thought of the environment as being my issue. But when you're on the Hill and the next job opportunity presents, you usually take it, especially when you're a junior, and so that just really opened up a whole new world to me. I was working for the late Senator John Chafee from Rhode Island, who was the chairman of the committee. And he was integral to a lot of our um, major environmental statutes, probably things that most people listening take for granted, like hmm, safe drinking water. And, you know, at the time they were talking about climate change, and this was all sort of post Kyoto Protocol. Um, but the political divisiveness hadn't really started to, to gel around the issue yet. And I think it was because it was sort of under the radar and it was not an issue that I was working on. I worked on other issues, but there was someone in the office who was the designated climate change person. And then as I kind of progressed through my career, I was doing more water issues, some fish and wildlife, bird and bunny issues, we call it. And then at some point ended up working in the environmental community. And I was their token Republican, (laughs) the environmental community. But at that point, it wasn't such, again, the partisanship just wasn't there. So the two groups that I worked for, the National Wildlife Federation and the Nature Conservancy, both hired me because I had contacts with the, quote unquote, good environmental Republicans, which there were more than just a handful back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it was around 2003, the McCain-Lieberman climate change bill that I got more engaged in climate change, and it was really because it was a all-hands-on-deck kind of situation where we were calling all the offices to recommend that the members vote for this bill, and I was in charge of the Republican offices, and, you know, that was kind of the, the little bit of a trigger point for me, and then I moved on to um, the National Wildlife Federation, and again, didn't handle this issue as my primary portfolio, But in 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit. And that was really a game changer for a lot of us, um, including myself. And we started to connect all of the other issues. We worked on clean air, clean water, lands issues to what's happening with climate change and how climate change is going to impact each issue that we care about. So if you were an endangered species expert, yes, you care about species, but you have to care just as much about climate change, which, which is going to impact those species you're trying to protect. And so that was kind of my first real foray into the issue, and I really haven't looked back since then.
0: Wow, what a journey! You've definitely been in that environmental community. And Senator Chafee, I, I those were the like good old days, weren't they? He he was a stalwart. He was he did some good work. So I look at your Facebook page, and I th- see some of the things that you post. But occasionally, you get someone. That might say something snarky or that they're obviously a climate skeptic. There might be rep- Republicans that kind of find your your Facebook page. How, how do you guys kind of deal with those voices out there that really are kind of contradicting the main message that you're doing?
3: I think it's really important to meet people where they are. So one thing that I've learned is that nobody wants to talk to a know-it-all. So if somebody comes to me and, and a perfect example, I was at a high school reunion recently and I heard a lot of pushback, right? Oh, the climate's been changing since the beginning of time or it's too big. We can't do anything about it. And so I am not going to take these people and throw them an IPCC report, right? That's (laughs) not what they want to do. But if I sort of figure out what is their concern really um, or what do they like to do? So I'm from Maine and a lot of People I grew up with are big hunters and anglers. And so if you just start talking to them, hey, have you noticed you can't go ice fishing the same length of season as you used to be able to? Or have you noticed that the leaves are changing color at a different time of year than they used to? You start to notice some of those things and you can start to connect that this is not just a random warm winter or that there is a trend that is occurring. And so what I always try to do is just kind of find like, well, have you noticed this? Have you noticed that? And not in a condescending Hermione Granger kind of way, just, again, trying to have a conversation and to say, well, have you thought about this? And and I would say that the biggest pushback is that the U.S. can't act alone. And I agree, we cannot, but we also have to lead. And the U.S. doesn't wait for China. The U.S. doesn't wait for India, right? When have we ever waited for other countries? We get out there. we take the lead. We have the innovation. We have that spirit of ingenuity here. And then we'll be the ones that make money off it eventually.
0: Well, Representative Inglis made a point about the U.S. leading and I think about World War II. And we waited to get into that war. And what did that lead to Pearl Harbor? And so he he was making the you know similarities between climate change and that. And I thought that was kind of good. Actually, we don't want to wait until something kind of blows up in our face like that.
3: Right, right. For sure.
0: This is a question I asked some of the other folks that I have in this episode, and we'll see how you want to answer this, is that you're an interesting Republican, it sounds like. You've been in the environmental space for a long time, and I'm sure you surrounded yourself with people that were a lot of liberals, a lot of progressive people. But you're a Republican, and I we haven't talked about what issues are important to you, but I asked the, uh, the you know, Ruzi and John about OK, so you, let's look at taxes. Let's look at these other main issues that it means to be a conservative. But then when it comes to climate change, when it comes to actually voting for someone like how important is the issue of climate change around your ability to vote for a candidate? And you don't necessarily have to tell me who you might vote for, but that must be tricky for you because you you, you're, you are a Republican. But climate change is obviously very important to you. But at the end of the day, when there comes a chance to actually pass some legislation, how do you deal with those kind of situations?
3: You know, I've never been party line voter, so I always try to look at the ballot and see who I think is best going to reflect my interests. And my number one interest is the environment. So I I live in a very blue state, so I actually don't really, there aren't a lot of options where I live on the ballot. But, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, I want the people in power who are going to come to the table and make the right decisions. A very unfortunate thing happened probably starting around the 2000s, early 2000s, where the more so-called moderate Republicans who I probably identify more with ideologically all got unelected. And, you know, the first thing that happened was that they got primaried from the far right. and and that was sort of a lot of those folks are People I would put in the anti-climate solutions or the, the climate disputers, as Bob likes to call them, category. And some of those folks are in office today, but a lot of them lost to Democrats. And, and this kind of unfortunate thing happened. I mean, it was more of a polarization of our political space, but also the environmental community who used to work more with these so-called centrist or moderate Republicans, they stopped Feeling like they needed Republicans as much because, oh, well, if candidate, if, you know, the Democratic candidate won, it's a wash, whether it was that person or the moderate Republican when it comes to the environment. And it's really not right, because you need someone from both sides. There's no, you know, even when President Obama had a supermajority in the Senate, they were not able to pass climate change legislation. And so I think that you know, this very unfortunate thing has happened where we became so focused on the letter next to somebody's name. Is it a D or is it an R and not looking at what they embody? And so that's what I try to do when I'm looking at a ballot. I pay close attention to climate change and, and there is really, I can't think of another issue right now that I would put ahead that um, when I'm going to the voting booth. and you know, I have kids and my kids are worried about what their future and what their kid's future is going to look like. And so I feel like I have to take that into serious consideration.
0: It'll be interesting to see how the parties evolve, you know, especially the Republican Party, be it 10, 20, hopefully not that long, but just some game changer legislation, be it some significant carbon tax or cap and trade where the lay of the land around climate change changes radically. And then Hopefully the Republicans new position on climate change will be like, well, no, we're going to fund, you know, adapting this way. And, you know, I I look forward to the day when we have those kind of different discussions.
3: You know, I think the Green New Deal sort of sparked that conversation a little bit. Right. I think that I I might thank Congresswoman AOC.
0: AOC. That's okay. Everyone knows AOC. So
3: I really thank AOC for Putting the Green New Deal on the table because that really pushed people on the conservative side to take note. And even though a lot of the members of the House, um, conservative members who never talked about climate change when they held the gavels, are now saying, okay, yeah, there is something that we should be doing here. That's progress. And we can sit around and say, well, when they were in charge, they didn't do anything until we're blue in the face. But that isn't really going to get us anywhere. If they're willing now, let's exercise that willingness. (laughs) Let's get them to the table. And, you know, Republican, we're not about throwing a lot of federal dollars at fixing the problem. That's why we think a carbon tax is the way to go. You know, we don't want to be the proponents of a conservative Green New Deal that funds the things that we're interested in. Right? That is. The same is going to grow the government the same way that AOC's plan would, but we do think that a conversation about a carbon tax is very relevant and very important. And at the end of the day, will be the policy mechanism that moves forward.
0: For my listeners out there, and let's my conservative listeners, how, how would you encourage them to engage on this issue and even engage with republic again?
3: Well, they can join our community by going to our website, republicen.org, where you can sign up. You can sign up to get my weekly newsletter, which I will just say is not hard to read. I try to keep it light and informative and link to everything that has a little bit of a deeper dive, but just try to keep it informative, but also very readable. And you get to learn usually about the things I'm doing in my life as well. I'm a sharer, but also just, you know, I struggle a little bit, too right? Because like I said, where I live, I live very much in a liberal community. And and so what I've tried to do is to just connect at the local level. Today, right before our call, I joined my town's green infrastructure committee. So I'm not sure what that's going to entail yet. But I thought, huh, why not just see and talk to folks and, and try to, you know, sometimes working on the national level can feel really scary. And, you know, you're a tiny fish in a very big pond, but in your community, you can really make a difference. So that's a nice place to start where you can kind of feel and see some immediate changes, but also don't underestimate letting your lawmakers know that you care, especially if you're conservative and you have a Republican lawmaker who represents you either in the House or the Senate. Having worked in in the Senate for a number of years, I know it does not take many people to email or call into an office to get that member's attention. So you might think, oh, what does my little email matter? It really matters. And so if you and 10 of your friends and 10 of their friends and 10 of their friends all write in and say, this is an important issue, you're giving that person a signal that they should come to the table and be active. And so that's how we're going to make a difference.
0: Okay, Chelsea, thank you so much. Been a pleasure talking to you. And I appreciate the work that you're doing. And thanks for coming on.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Hey Adapters, I am talking with Ruzi Fafai. Ruzi is a businessman and a representative for Republic EN. Hi Ruzi, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how are you doing? Great, thanks for coming on. Really excited about this episode and sharing your message. And so where are you based out of?
4: I'm in uh, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, which is basically Charleston, South Carolina. Okay, there's a lovely area there. Yeah, no flooding here.
0: (laughs) Not yet. The season hasn't kicked in, right? (laughs) So what do you do? You're a businessman, but you you have this role with Republic E.N. What what does that entail?
4: It's basically, put it in simple terms, it's almost like a brand ambassador type thing, is, you know, write articles, try to talk to different elected representatives. I mean, for example, today, I went and I spoke with uh, Lindsey Graham's low country director about Republic E.N., about our message. As you know, Lindsey Graham has been a has been an Echo Right member for quite some time. And he's probably the most senior official right now in the Republican Party that has acknowledged climate change.
0: So you are Republican. At what point did climate change become an important issue for you?
4: To be completely honest, when Al Gore was running for president, I I did not believe in man-made climate change. It probably started shifting. My viewpoint probably shifted probably by the end of the 2010s. 0708 was when, you know, I really started thinking about, okay, well, how much is human activity causing this change? You know, having lived most of the 20s, the, 2000, the 2000s in Europe and the Middle East, I saw a lot of different climates. I went through a lot of different ones. And everywhere I went, you know, they say, oh, this is unseasonably warm, or this hasn't happened in 200 years, or however long, you know, they kept records, or the fire season's gone longer, or it hasn't snowed here in God knows when, you know what I mean? So when you have these conversations throughout multiple territories, you have to start thinking.
0: That, that's very interesting though, that process. I mean, do you feel like there was one moment that was a catalyst or was it just sort of like ongoing like exposure kind of information that, you know what, this makes more sense to me. How did that kind of unfold?
4: I think it was a combination of both. You know, when, when again, it's when you're sitting there in you know, sitting in London one day and, you know, it just started snowing and my brother and we lived there for 20 odd years or something said he doesn't remember the last time it snowed in London and you take that you couple that with what happened in Charleston like I think two years ago or three years ago where it snowed you know five inches or six inches or however much it was and it hadn't snowed that much in 30 years right so you just take little bits and pieces of what you have and you you know I like to study up on the subject I don't like just reading one source and being like oh yeah okay no it exists you know what I mean so I like studying about it and and coming to my own conclusions, really.
0: Okay, so with Republic EN, it's an organization that talks about free market solutions to the issue of climate change. But when it comes to talking to fellow Republicans, especially in South Carolina, what do you spend more of your time on? Is it trying to propose these solutions, or is it just talking about the, the basic belief that climate change is even an issue?
4: That's an interesting question. I kind of evolved on my approach towards that. At first, it was, hey, you know what, this is, you know, Republican has a great message. It's a conservative message. Let me try to spread the message and get more people to, you know, see the value in believing in this thing. And I realized people that don't want to believe in something just won't believe in it. Right. I mean, it it is that that simple. So I kind of I I did have a one sparking image, like one moment where, you know, we were at dinner with uh, a couple of conservatives and. That's when I kind of shifted from trying to convince people to just saying, hey, I don't really care that you don't believe in this. We're moving on to the solutions part of it.
0: And so how do they respond to that kind of blunt change of the conversation?
4: I mean, it wasn't actually even a change of conversation. This individual just individuals kind of said, I don't know, you've been hoaxed by climate change, by liberal media or whatever. And, you know, I simply put down my knife and fork and said, well, you know, what? it doesn't really matter. You're old. You're going to be dead soon. <laughs> <laughs> so... It doesn't really matter if you believe it or not. It matters if I believe in it. It matters if your niece or your grandchildren believe in it, because we're the ones that are going to have to pay for it, and not you. You're going to be gone. And I mean, that's a simple fact. It's It, it sucks to be that blunt, but when you know a generation ahead of us causes most of the problems that we have to fix, sometimes you just have to say, hey, it doesn't matter. You, you go away. <laughs>
0: I <laughs> love your blindness. You know, yeah, I get it. Get out
4: of my way. You know, it's just like, you know, if you're not going to help me, get out of my way.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about some of the solutions. And it, it seems to me, even my conversation with Representative Inglis and uh, with some of the other folks that you, you work with, is that the carbon tax seems to be the most prominent one. But within, I guess, more conservative circles on folks that actually do want to address climate change, are there any other solutions besides a, a carbon tax that you guys are talking about?
4: I mean, there, there are. You know, solutions galore. The the, the beauty of uh, America is that we have a lot of thinkers and we innovate a lot. So yeah, I mean, there's plenty of solutions. It just it depends on which one fits the best mold, right? So how do you reduce the carbon footprint? That I mean, here here's science. Here's a fact. You know, China and the United States contribute to almost half of global carbon dioxide emissions, right? India, I think, is somewhere around like 10% or something. Or five—I don't know what they are—but they're a distant third. So a conversation needs to be had, and you know, one would be the the AOC method—you know, the Green New Deal, ban everything, you know, bloat the government, create departments for whatever reason. And that's one solution. Um, is it a good solution? As a conservative, I'm going to say no. It's not a good solution because it's going to increase uh, government spending, right? At a time where our budget is hurting. So to speak, carbon tax is one uh, one approach, but the the Republic Ian approach that really got my attention is really the free market aspect of it. Right. So you you tax uh, polluters, right, for basically sending us to the hospital for asthma or whatnot. You remove their subsidies because, believe it or not, we actually subsidize coal um, and a lot of polluting energy uh, producers. And we also subsidize green energy. So the taxpayers out there spending billions of dollars subsidizing energy. So the Republican approach is saying, Hey, let's remove all the subsidies across the, across the board. Let's get them all gone and let's tax the people that need to be taxed for polluting. And the, the free market will determine based on studies that renewable energy will uh, be cheaper.
0: Um, this curious thing, too, the Green New Deal gets a lot of attention because it's it's obviously a solution someone's put forward that a lot of people don't necessarily like. But it's it's there to try to address the problem of climate change. How big a deal is climate change to folks? And if it came down, you know, the Green New Deal in whatever form it might take it, there was one vote needed left. Let's say it's in the Senate to pass this thing. How would you feel? Would you, even though this notion that it might increase the size of government, it might increase spending and you're going to say it will, but it still will address the larger issue of climate change, you still think there's value in actually passing it because of the challenges of passing any legislation?
4: I mean, it's obviously, it's hard to speculate what, you know, what legislation is going to go through D.C. or the Senate at all. Let's just say it's the Green New Deal in its current state. I right, just assume that it is what it is right now. And that's the way it's going to go through. I, first of all, I doubt it's going to be one vote away uh, from going through that in that Hypothetical, Yes. Hypothetically.
2: hypothetically,
4: let's say it's, it's, you know, it's up to, let's say it's up to the vice president who has the final vote. Right. right? And so it's 50, 50 vice president gets to break it. It's, I think I feel it's one of those things where um, what's that saying that, you know, you bite your nose to spite your face, something like that. In right. other words, Great, we just solved you know a problem, you know, by reducing carbon emissions by fifty percent or sixty percent or whatever it is. But now instead of a trillion dollar budget deficit, we have a one point five trillion dollar budget deficit or a two trillion dollar budget deficit. Right? So okay, great. Now we can we can breathe easier, but now we have to increase taxes, whatnot, to to make this budget work. That's where I would be reluctant those are the two main issues for me anyway the budget and uh, climate
0: right I'm just sort of putting you on the spot in regards to kind of voting like as you know as big legislation in Washington sometimes if these things fail even closely it can take 10 20 25 years before another attempt at doing such a thing and so the notion of unless you don't think it's going to address climate change at all do we pass upon this opportunity and it's you know I think whatever climate legislation hopefully it's going to happen sooner rather than later it conservatives and liberals are not going to be happy with whatever I think kind of goes through it. But what can you live right. with? And is the Green New Deal in its current form something that if it meant addressing this huge crisis of climate change? And I don't know if you can necessarily answer that now. It's just I think we're headed that way where people are gonna to have to make a lot of tough decisions.
4: A lot of tough decisions are going to have to made on a host of issues, not just climate change let's just try to be creative, right? I mean, in the, in the 30 seconds that we have, let's say you, you pass the Green New Deal, you have to give something up though, right? So do you give up entitlements, right? Do you cut military spending in half, right? So, I mean, if, you know, that's that's what we're supposed to, that's what our politicians are supposed to do up there is compromise on behalf of uh, their constituents. So, yeah, I mean, if there's gonna be some kind of a, a budget budget cut, then sure, But if you're going to do it in its current form and it's going to bloat, I mean, I read statistics that it's going to be anywhere from 10 percent to 25 percent extra government spending.
0: Yeah, you never know how this kind of manifested themselves. But again, you kind of contrast that with they look project out 30, 50, 75 years. What is the cost of climate change impacts? And pretty soon those dwarfs enhance sort of the spending. And, you know, people are starting to use those numbers. And so – you're in South Carolina and just related to what we were just talking about regarding costs is that has adaptation, adapting to climate change become a, a more important issue for the conversations that you're having? You know, you are in South Carolina. You're really just like Florida and some of those states ground zero. Have you, have you found that has come up more for you?
4: It does, actually. I mean, I, I make the argument very similar to what you just did, that the fact that we're not doing anything is costing us more than if we were to do something. So I think there's one study that we have 60 sunny day floods a year in Charleston, right? Now, a sunny day flood is there isn't a cloud in the sky. It's just high tide and the streets get flooded, right? So that's up from, I think, I think 15 or 20, um, maybe two, three decades ago, right? Now, part of that has to do with climate change. Part of that has to do with urban development. But that is an issue that we're talking about is how many times do you want to repave a road, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a civil engineer, so I don't really know how much it costs to you know, do a, one block of paving, but I'm pretty sure it costs something, right? Or how many times are you going to – how much productivity is lost by evacuating a city for anywhere from one to three weeks a year, right, or shutting down an international airport for a couple of days? You know, so I mean, those things you have to think about.
0: So, and, and so you're using that rhetoric more and more, I guess, to try to make your point of making the case for identifying a solution. And, and that's very encouraging. And so, what I use say on the podcast quite a bit now, is sort of the pathway to true mitigation, you know, carbon mitigation is through adaptation. It's, 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 uh, I think it gets people, I guess, a bit more excited that you're doing something more proactive. And then you can maybe make the case against lowering your carbon footprint by thinking about adaptation more. There's a real opportunity there. Right. Last question for you. Let's say my South Carolina listeners, my Republican South Carolina listeners, they want to get There's more involved. Us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going to increase that too after you've been on. Is that uh, what can they do? What if they're interested in learning more about what, what you're up to? What would you, would you recommend that the next step that they could do to kind of get more involved?
4: Well, I would definitely encourage them to look at republician. and reach out to anyone there, including myself, to you know, get involved. Uh, it's not just, we're not just doing this in South Carolina, it's nationwide. You know, Congressman Inglis, I think when we, I texted him earlier today, he's on a two day conference, uh, regarding the issue. So I don't know where he is, but I know that, you know, this man tra- travels this, the United States endlessly trying to spread this, this viewpoint. And to that end, I mean, there are so many different organizations and philosophies on how to to tackle this. I can't begin to even list them. Um, All I can do is advocate ours. I do have to say, definitely make sure you watch where you're getting your information from. I mean, there are some websites that have uh, simulations of Charleston being underwater in 10 years. (laughs) Right. I mean, I mean, I guess it's possible. You know, anything's possible, but, you know, it just I don't like going to the extreme ends of like, oh, my God, it's doomsday. I mean, we're getting close to a point of no return, but we're not there yet.
0: Okay, Rosie, this has been a fantastic conversation. I encourage – I have a lot of people that are involved in climate change professions in any capacity, and they attend a lot of conferences. They're always looking for panels. They're looking for webinars. I encourage you to reach – a lot of times people are not even thinking, oh, what Republican conservative voice could we get for this? And I, I highly encourage you guys to kind of reach out to Republican Ian and people like Rosie. That, that, that Just some great things to say. But thanks again for coming on, and thanks for the work that you're doing.
4: Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Hey adapters, that is a wrap. That was such a fun episode to do. I'm inspired by the work that they are doing at Republic EN. I don't necessarily agree with all their approaches, but that's what's great about having other voices weigh in. They are having a debate about solutions to climate change, not a debate about whether climate change is a problem. We've already settled that. Imagine if the entire Republican Party took this same approach and we had that brain power directed at coming up with solutions. I'm encouraged they are making inroads on this, but they certainly have their work cut out for them. If you're a conservative and want to learn more about what you can do to address climate change, check out Republic EN's website. I have links in my show notes. And thanks to Bob for coming on. What a fun, enlightening conversation. Okay. Don't forget about the resource podcast in the classroom. If you're interested in using America DAPs in your classrooms for students or even professional workshops, check it out. It's being led by Kate Bishop-Williams at the University of Waterloo. Basically each episode, Kate and a small team listen to my most recent episode, then develop discussion guides that will be available in the show notes. These guides have been a great resource for educators, and we are excited to see them developing to better suit the needs of educators out there some travel I am collaborating with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology MIT on a inland migration episode that they are hosting they're putting on a workshop there so I'm going to Boston I'll be partnering with MIT's podcast Today I Learn Climate and we'll, we're kind of putting together sort of a semi joint episode Also, I'm going to Gainesville, Florida in the fall to lead a podcast workshop at a science communication workshop that UF is leading. It's always great to go back and see the Gators. If you're interested in learning more about how podcasting can be a tool in the communication that you do, please reach out. Also, if you and your organization are interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. I just recently did one with American Forest in New York. That was super cool. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue of adaptation. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. Also, if you are interested in hearing moi speak at a public or corporate event, I'm really good. I've been doing some keynote presentations, and they are so much fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own professional experiences in adaptation. This will motivate you. It will inspire you. So Check out my contact information at the website, americadaps.org. Okay, don't forget you can make a donation to America Adapts. It is a nonprofit organization. You are providing financial support to further communicating what will be the defining issue of this age, adapting to climate change. You can donate at did.it but again, links are in the show notes. Okay. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is growing. We're having some great conversations in there. The group itself is private, but just uh, send a request to join and I will approve it right away. Some really cool discussions are happening there. People are sharing their own work. They're sharing stories that are coming out. Check it out. Okay, on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. I hear from people all the time. They tell me what their favorite episodes are. They give me ideas for guests all the time. Seriously, it is the highlight of my week hearing from you, and sometimes it leads to really cool collaborations. You can reach me at at gmail.com. Again, links in the show notes. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.